I hope that we live or are starting more to live in a world that is so inclusive that we are not even noticing the gender of key characters when we're talking about a love story. That to me, hopefully, helps to normalize same-sex connection on film. Hello, and welcome to a brand new season of The Awardist from Entertainment Weekly, taking you inside this year's top contenders for the Oscars and more of the industry's biggest awards. I'm David Canfield, EW's Movies Editor, joined by my co-host Clarissa Cruz, EW's Executive Editor. Hi, Clarissa. Hi, David. Over the next 12 long, tumultuous weeks, we will be tracking and debating the season's biggest races, chatting with some of our favorite stars, and engaging in some Oscar trivia. Today, we've got a very special guest in Oscar and Golden Globe winner, Kate Winslet, chatting about her new film, Ammonite, in which she gives one of my favorite performances of hers ever, maybe. But before we get into that, we have lots to discuss with Golden Globe and SAG nominations hitting this week, giving us our first peek at the Oscars. To help break it down, we've enlisted the expertise of our awards expert, Joey Nolfi. Hi, Joey. Yeah, hello. Two things. Um, One, I I thought you were leading with my introduction when you first said very special guest. And second, I was told this was a summit symposium on the instantly classic and iconic Naomi Watts bird movie Penguin Bloom, which received zero Golden Globe nominations this year. So that is not what this session is for. Zero SAG nominations, too. So we had we had to pivot, unfortunately. Oh, Joey. Okay, I'm done. I'm out. For those listening and don't know what Penguin Bloom is, by the end of this episode, you definitely will. Well, let's put it into context. Uh, Joey, is Penguin Bloom this year's Hustlers? Uh, yes, it absolutely is. <laughs> in that I will be referencing it alongside Mama in every single awardist thing that we do from now until the Oscars. So, yes, in that sense. So excited. Jennifer Lopez, Magpies. Should we talk about Mama to start? Because... She is, Glenn Close is, that is, um, looking pretty good (laughs) in Best Supporting Actress. She was nominated for both the Globe and the SAG Award, meaning the Hillbilly Elegy detractors could not Mm. stop Mama. Mm -mm -mm. And might I say that it was very unfairly detracted? I mean, I don't think it is the best film of the year by any means, but I think that it was a sort of... Um, like people wanted to watch something burn. So I feel like that film got the brunt of a lot of people's anger for very unfair reasons. But um, yeah, it's really great to see Glenn showing up. Um, You know, that kitten t-shirt is instantly iconic. That wig is iconic. The glasses, um, the perch and swivel, the Polish people's butts joke. I mean, there is so much going on in that performance. Wait, wait, wait. wait. Can, Can you back up a second and just explain the perch and swivel? So in the beginning... There is somebody like mouth mouths off to Mama and Glenn is like throws up her middle finger and is like perch and swivel. And then like, it's just, <laughs> that's right. it's just iconic. That's right. Did we actually say the name of the film that we're referring to? This is a uh, hillbilly elegy um, yes. that Glenn Close is, uh, is um, definitely the breakout from that. Mm-hmm. Um, and also Joey's slack photo. Former. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> it cycles. But yes, Mama was was my Slack photo for months and months and months. Yes, um, she's just I love that character so much, uh, and Glenn's performance is just brilliant. So I'm really glad to see her sticking it out here, and it's looking like it's going to be a two way race. I think now that Amanda Seyfried missed out on supporting actress at 
SAG, so I'm thinking it's going to be between our beloved Maria Bakalova for Borat and Glenn Close, correct? Hmm. It's interesting. We Let's take a step back and sort of the race felt like going into this week, Amanda Seyfried for Mank was probably the front runner almost by default because, you know, both Maria and Glenn didn't even feel assured of nominations necessarily. You know, Glenn Close is in a movie that has gotten the kind of reviews that are so bad that you don't yeah. often see them, you know, stick around for the Oscar race, even per, for mm-hmm. performances that get great reviews. And Maria Bakalova, who no one had ever heard of a few months ago, um, in a really broad com- comedy, really broad comic role, Borat subsequent movie film, but was just such a star and such a breakout that I think immediately when that film premiered, there was this really galvanizing movement to get her into the awards conversation. And yep. clearly it's stuck. She's nominated for best actress in a musical or comedy at the golden globes. And I think is a very clear front runner in that category yep. and is nominated for best supporting actress in a film uh, at the SAG awards. She's one of the few along with Glenn. Um, and I think that may be it to, to yeah, hit both, to, to hit, hit both everything of supporting yeah. actress candidates to hit both of those. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, yeah, Amanda did get into the Golden Globes uh, because the Globes loved Mank. SAG did not quite love Mank. So that category is uh, in in a strange state right now. Yeah, let's let's back up and just talk a little bit about the state of the race. I mean, w- given the nominations from SAG and Golden Globes, I mean, what are some of the overall Oscar frontrunners that you guys are seeing? Um, the movie that has been really steadily out in front is Nomadland, the Chloe Zhao film that stars Frances McDormand. It is the critical darling. It was the festival hit, whatever that means, in a, in a virtual year. And it it has a lot of industry support as well. There's a lot of talk about Chloe. She's directing Marvel's Eternals, which is out at the end of this year, and uh, just feels really primed for a big Oscar moment like this. Yeah. Um, it did not show up in the best ensemble category at SAG, which ne- not necessarily it would. It's not really an ensemble piece. Poor Swanky. Is that Swanky Shade? That, that is a little <laughs> bit of Swanky, swanky. Shade. A little what, bit of what's Swanky her, Shade. Linda May, is that the other one? Yeah. Well, without that SAG ensemble nod, I mean, it's an interesting stat because it can help, um, but I don't think it's necessarily always required to take Best Picture. I mean, there have been, what, three the Shape of Water, Braveheart, and Green Book, of course, um, two of those happening within the last three years um, to win Best Picture without an ensemble nomination. Um, but Nomadland's strengths seem to be just beyond um, normal statistics. I mean, it's really emotionally just such a progressive movie that plays. It's like it's such a it feels like a jolt of energy to the soul in these really dire times that you can just feel you like bring your own emotions to it. I mean, those sweeping scenes with Francis against this, you know, sweeping backdrop of the American landscape. Um, it, it's just a really great sort of emotional canvas for audiences to sort of connect with and bring their own emotions to versus something that's more traditionally dramatic and controlled and clinical, I guess, like Trial of the Chicago 7, which, as we all know, was actually released in 1997. Um, And voters (laughs) across the industry are, I think, responding to that gut, soulful, emotional feeling that they get when they watch Nomadland. So that is, I think, the undeniable frontrunner right now. Would you say that trial is its biggest competition or is there is there something else in the race that that you think could be a challenger? Statistically, probably. Um, 
Yeah, David, what would you say? I say statistically, it's probably trial. Statistically, yes. Clarissa, you and I were um, at the SAG Awards last year when Parasite won, and that felt like <laughs> such uh, a moment for its Best that Picture was... campaign. Um, yeah, Joey's amazing. making a face because I was in the room, but I happened <laughs> to live on the West oh, Coast. We were in the room. Oh, we were it's a little cool. easier for me to head out there. Um, back, back, when, back when we could be in a room. That's back true. When we could, back, back when you could wear clothes. 100 people in a room. Nice clothes, and only one yeah. David Canfield, believe me. You know? <laughs> now I'm on Joey's level, it seems. So here, here we are. <laughs> yeah, my SAG Awards is me with a spoon and a jar of Nutella. That's me. That's my SAG Awards in my living room. But the other film that was nominated this year in Ensemble that I'm really looking at was Minari, um, which, for reasons beyond the fact that it is um, a largely Asian cast, has a really, really passionate base of support. It's a smaller movie than A Trial of Chicago 7, which is probably the presumed frontrunner in that race, just given the you know, the stars in the film and how it's, it is such an ensemble piece, but a movie like that can, if, if actors can really get behind it as they already seem to have, that was really our first sort of hint about Parasite. You could see it um, developing into a real player in the best picture race. I think it's still got a ways to go. Um, but I'm just remembering that moment last year. And, and that that's the movie where I would look at that and say, if it could somehow pull it off, um it's it's got a real shot yeah it's a very very real possibility um i just am am skeptical of it still because i think that we always see with sag because they vote earlier um they're they're just there are so many weird one-off nominations that sag pulls out sometimes i mean i think back to things like sarah silverman for i smile back and like didn't like the girl on the train emily blunt get something for that (laughs) it's like they always pull out these weird early one-off nominations now minari did get a few nominations but i'm still hesitant to go for it just because sag does sort of tend to be ahead of the race sometimes um so yeah i would love to see momentum build for it and get the ensemble win i think that would be incredible but i am hesitant to you know be as sure about it um especially after it missed out on um i'm sorry i still don't know how to pronounce her name is it yoon yoon yoo jung yeah yeah missed out on the golden globes i think that was really telling um that you know perhaps certain groups because the globes voted after sag so, um, you know, that's more telling, I think. Right. Well, we talked about um, some of the contenders that are that are lagging behind after SAG and Golden Globe noms. But um, what about uh, the, the opposite? Um, who are some of the ones that, that were surprising and got boosts from those two nominations? Must we mention Jared Leto? I, I suppose we must. <laughs> no. <laughs> must we? Must we? <laughs> uh, one of the few to show up at both um, for The Little Things, which is a, a really quiet, not very well-reviewed Warner Brothers film in which Denzel Washington gives a far better performance. Um, but Jared is the one that they have been pushing. And it, it's the kind of movie that just hits at the right time. And if you push it in the right way, you can start to see him pop up, but I don't necessarily think that's going to translate to an Oscar nomination for him. I, this movie is just not, doesn't have the legs 
yeah. um, that even a movie like Hillbilly Elegy does, where it, it <laughs> for better or worse, uh, it's <laughs> one we continue to talk about. And I think The Little Things does not quite have that staying power. Yeah. Yeah, he's going to be, David, we were slacking a little bit during the SAG nominations, and I I think that we can both agree. I think that Jared is probably going to be, I hate to compare him to the greatness of Jennifer Lopez, but he is going to be, I think, the (laughs) Jennifer Lopez of this year. I think he's going to get Golden Globe, SAG, Critics' Choice, and then sit the Oscars out. It just feels like that kind of performance to me, like a very celebrity sort of fueled nomination that is going to not be taken as seriously by the Oscars, I think. Mm -hmm. The other big one was Promising Young Woman, which Carrie Mulligan got in at SAG. The film has a great cast. It did not get an ensemble, but it was so dominant at the Golden Globes in a way Mm -hmm. that, yeah, it's a small, weird voting body that made a lot of very odd choices this year. See his music <laughs> getting three nominations, including Best what Motion Picture. <laughs> crazy, yeah, crazy, crazy, crazy. Yeah. Well, what what did what do you think Sia film took the place of? Like, what what would have been in that spot if that didn't get it? I think Let them all talk, or the yeah, let them all talk. Probably let them all talk. And then I thought of On the Rocks too. They did nominate yes. Bill mm-hmm. Murray for that film um, from Sofia Coppola, and they you know Bill Murray has won a Golden Globe for a Sofia Coppola film in the past. Um, so that, that to me felt like the one, although I think there's just a broader story about like, you know, in the best picture drama category, they didn't nominate any of the films with black casts and you have a really broad, you know, swath of movies to consider there that are actively contenders. For example, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom and One Night in Miami were both nominated for best ensemble at the SAG Awards. Um, you also have Judas and the Black Messiah and Defy Bloods, which are these, you know, bigger budget, uh, sh- stronger overall contenders, maybe that um, Judas clearly, I think, was just maybe a late breaker. It still got in for its biggest player, Daniel Kaluuya and supporting actor. Um, but Defy Bloods didn't get anything. And it's um, a summer Which is release. awkward because Spike's kids are <laughs> the, the Golden Globe ambassadors this year. As of this recording. <laughs> yeah, I mean. Can I go back to the point about um, One Night in Miami and Ma Rainey um, mm-hmm, showing yeah. up um, mm-hmm. in the best picture for Globes? Because I think that those films are very, I mean, I know Ma Rainey is, it's based on a stage play, correct? Right. Um, so I, I think that, that that film feels very actor driven. It doesn't feel as strong. I think when you look at the story itself as a film, I think that that film is very actor driven. It's very much about the performances working together and individually in that film. So it makes sense to me why they wouldn't vote for that for best picture. Cause I personally don't think it's, you know, one of the best pictures of the year, nor do I think One Night in Miami is one of the best films of the year. I think that is also driven very much by its ensemble. It is an electric film for the way they work together, the way they play off of each other. That is a very actor driven film. So that doesn't necessarily surprise me that those are not showing up um, at best picture at the Globes, but they are showing up with the actors. And I think that the actors are what are going to fuel those movies getting high placements on the preferential ballot when it comes to best picture at the Oscars. It is not going to be because they are sort of hitting with everybody that way. It's going to be the actors that feel that. Um, but I don't think that they're, you know, front running contenders for best picture by any means. It's hmm. a really good point. That's a really good point. Um, so any last thoughts on um, SAG and Golden Globe noms before we move on to uh, the pandemic Oscars this year? <laughs> <laughs> That's a lovely segue. Um, <laughs> do we want to just briefly touch on Steven for Minari? Because I, I know love, that. Yeah, seriously. I mean, yeah. he's 
Joey and I have good. some thoughts on this, though. We do. Okay, have yeah, yeah. Let's do it. I, I'd love to hear the thoughts. I, I love that movie. I saw it more recently than you guys did. Oh, and me it's too. Just, just so, you know, so in my heart. So it's great. Tell- it's it's a great film. Steven yeah. is good in it, but he is not lead. <laughs> He's not, <laughs> and it's we usually see. And for some reason, we saw Viola Davis sort of doing this this year as well as these supporting performances going lead they're doing category fraud the wrong way <laughs> it's like people yeah. were it's going okay <laughs> well i mean but people were very upset when steven didn't get nominated at the globes and i'm like i, I it's not it's not fair to me to call steven not getting in at the globes a snub because there is no scenario in which out of those five that got nominated that he is more of a lead performance than them in minari he's not he's supporting it's little alan kim's story it's can we, not can we talk, steven's story let, can can you can you guys explain sort of you know to to people like when actors are positioned for certain um, certain categories and how that works and why things like this happen? Sure. So in the case of a movie like Minari, you have a lot of at least to U.S. audiences unknown actors, and Stephen Yen is the face of the movie. Yes. And I think what got people really excited about it in the first place. And normally, you know, there's uh, the film Supernova, which stars Colin Firth and Stanley Tucci in co-lead roles. Stanley, who has the better chance of a nomination, is going supporting because it's a smaller movie. And I guess you could make that argument, but I don't think you can really, Um, though I am still pulling for him. I think he's fantastic in it. Um, In the case of a movie like Minari, I think because supporting actor this year is so stacked with those cast members from one Night in Miami, Trial of Chicago 7, and then you also have, um, you know, some Ma Rainey actors like Glenn Turman, who I don't think are quite out of the conversation yet. It just immediately makes it that much more competitive, in addition to frontrunners like Sacha Baron Cohen and Daniel Kaluuya for Judas and the Black Messiah. So I'm guessing it was a strategic move, and it seems to have paid off because every time he doesn't show up, there there is this Steven Yeun contingent that is like, where's Steven Yeun? And I'm like... You know, the Globes, Tahar Rahim was a big surprise nominee for the Mauritanian. And Mm -hmm. he's so great in that movie. And that is his movie. And that's Mm -hmm. whose spot he presumably took, although Delroy Lindo also wasn't nominated. Mm. Um, It just becomes a very murky conversation. uh, And I think it's being framed in the wrong way. And I I still think at come Oscar time, you know, clearly SAG loved Minari. I just don't think the performance is at the you know screen time alone, but also in terms of an arc that voters like to grab hold of. Yeah. I just don't mm-hmm. think it's there, and I, I don't. Yeah. I do think he will miss out in the end. Yep, it's, and it's good. It's if this was if he was campaigning and supporting, I think the conversation we'd be having would be totally different because um, it sounds like. I mean, I don't want it to sound like we're you know hating on the performance at all. It's a great performance. I love Steven. I think that he is brilliant, but it's just a matter of him, I think, being placed in the wrong category that we're taking an issue with. Yeah. Well, let's pivot a bit to the fact that this this Golden Globes is not going to be as we've typically seen mm-hmm. the Golden Globes. It's it's the first award show where you have a remote indication of what it will look like, which is a bi-coastal event. Um, Amy Poehler and Tina Fey, who have done a fantastic job hosting the Globes in the past, will not be together. They will be hosting from opposite ends of the country. Amy will be in the usual Globe spot at the Beverly Hilton in Los Angeles. And Tina Fey, um, perhaps true to form, is going live from New York uh, at 30 Rock. What is this going to look like? I mean, the Globes are known for, you know, Meryl Streep slurring (laughs) through a Best Actress speech 
I don't think they've indicated whether or not these this will necessarily be what kind of in-person component it will be. Clearly, there will be something to be said for um, these venues being used. But I mean, will it be like the Emmys where it was just a few people at a time and then everyone else kind of at home and, you know, getting drunk with their cast? Zendaya but, um, presenting, then yeah. rushing to her room and then like winning. Yeah. That was quite a moment. I yeah. <laughs> sort of the Emmys took that crown as the drunkest award show last year with what was it like Alex Borstein <laughs> on that elaborate bed in her nightgown drinking wine and then Sarah Snoke making her own Emmy out of tinfoil I mean that chaos was <laughs> incredible I loved it it was really great I think it added a really great personal element and didn't feel as stuffy um, and I hope that we just get to see Glenn Close broadcasting and Mama drag from her living room with Pippi on her lap that would be incredible <laughs> it would be I'm just super disappointed that Amy and Tina aren't going to be together, though. It's like those women are great on their own, obviously, but you hire them to host an award show because of their chemistry playing off of each other in the moment. And I don't know what that's going to look like f broadcasting on digital feeds across the country. I mean, that would be like... Well, I don't... Yeah, I don't know, because you and David's chemistry seem to be fine on this in this remote... Uh this oh. remote setup over here i mean oh, that's very nice i mean <laughs> yeah. I, don't leave I yourself think... out clarissa <laughs> <laughs> i just think i mean i'm not saying that it's they're not going to be good i think that they are going to be good but i think a lot of their jokes in the past and their chemistry together seeing them together being able to play off of their energy in that moment in the same space within a couple inches of each other i mean that's right. where i mean you know because there's going to have to be cuts um back and forth between them and i i right. don't know it's just it, it feels strange to me but i have to trust that they know what they're doing so yeah they're pros yeah clarissa I'm, I'm curious how you feel about how our interviews have gone and how, how it's been on our side i mean last year when we did our awardist interviews mm -hmm. you know the way this season works is all these contenders are running from place to place to place you, mm -hmm. you know they sit in a room they you talk to them for maybe 20 minutes they rush out they go to the next thing um, I have found in some of these conversations that we've had for this podcast, which you will listen to, that they, they've been able to be a little richer in a way because you are capturing these stars in more intimate spaces. I mean, really. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think, I think you know, they're at home. Um, I think they're inherently more comfortable. You know, there, uh, there's been a lot less glam. I mean, not that there's no glam, but, um, you know, every everyone is sort of... Um, I think just more relaxed. I think this season feels more intimate in a lot of ways. Um, I think uh, for not just for those interviews, but also in the quality of, of the movies, I think, because it's been sort of, uh, you know, by nature, it's kind of been a blockbuster free year. Yeah. And um, and I think the films are just reflecting that. Um, and I think that's a good thing. I think mm -hmm. I think it's, it's I think it's great as far as um, yeah. as far as the quality goes. Totally. It's interesting, too, because you get to see them in a different light. I mean, I think some of it's off the record, but like, I feel like I can safely say Glenn Close is not great at Zoom. Like, it, it was a thing. <laughs> like, I, I, I have learned a lot more about actors that I love than I ever thought I would know simply by like watching them set up an interview. <laughs> right, right. No, no, I mean, I think my, my favorite part was I was having technical difficulties because my first interview was with um, was with Riz Ahmed and, um, and my microphone just kept going beep, 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 like very rhythmically. And he started dancing. <laughs> <laughs> 
like it, it was it was um i mean he was very very professional about it but he but he he took everything in stride um but my favorite was um and this is not is not part of our podcast but when um uh, the let them all talk girls were on uh women were on um were on the today show and it took them half an hour <laughs> to figure out the, <laughs> the technical difficulties on live tv but um but yeah i mean I, I i think it's it's actually you know it's kind of endearing and um you know makes everyone seem a little bit more human yeah absolutely well another person who has some thought, thoughts on this is kate winslet and when we come back we're going to have an interview with her about ammonites pandemic campaigning, and much more. So stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Uh, here's my interview with Kate Winslet, star of the film Ammonite. Hope you enjoy. I'm joined today by Kate Winslet, Academy Award winner and star of the new film Ammonite. Thanks so much for joining us, Kate. You're welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. The the nature of taking on the role of Mary Anning, um, and I've seen, I've heard you say that you really had to lose yourself in this part. And I'm wondering what exactly you mean by that and what that process was like for you. Well, when I first read the script, I had this overwhelming feeling of this sort of surging excitement of, yes, I very much want to be a part of this. But at the same time, I, I also felt really extremely nervous because I, I just didn't know where to begin. I mean, playing a woman who existed in 1840, who had a very private, um, isolated life, who was socially incredibly awkward, who who had never truly been loved or knew how to love um, and lived in this very patriarchal, repressed society that was so dominated by, by men, that the geological world was so dominated by men that it had made Mary, I think, retreat further and further into her into her own world, and and there was a stillness and a sort of um, held emotional um, and physical quality to Mary that is just nothing like me. And you know, those aren't things that I felt I could just turn up and do on the day. I had to kind of mm -hmm. layer upon layer try and construct who I believe Mary needed to be, who I wanted for her to be. Um, and that sort of meant creating a little bit of almost a kind of a bunker for her. I had to, I tried to live my sort of daily rhythms as close to Mary's as I possibly could while we were filming. Um, I lived separately to my family, which was a really big deal. We've not done that before. Um, oh, wow. But I just knew that I wasn't going to be able to, you know, come home and cook a meal for everybody at night or think about, you know, what groceries you'd want run out of in the cupboard or, you know, doing the laundry. I just knew I wasn't going to be able to combine the two worlds at all. And and physically, I, I just needed to... Um, sort of slow myself down a little bit because Mary's movements are so precise and um, and and determined, um, but mm. steady um, in a way that my own are not, you know, I'm flailing around all over the place. You know, I'm, I'm an animated actress who, you know, moves her hands and uses her fingers like vocabulary, you know, and Mary is the same, but her vocabulary is very sparse and much more limited than my own. Um, and so I sort of started really from uh, from a place of wanting to understand 
who she had been as a child, really, and what her upbringing had been like. It was filled with struggle. She was very working class, self-taught. She'd had a really close relationship with her father. Um, and her mother had lost eight children to a variety of sort of um, mm. lower class, uh, working class illnesses, smallpox, house fires, floods, terrible things, really. And so Mary had been raised by a mother who was permanently in some degree of grief, and so for me, you know, that Mary's sort of isolation as a person from the world had begun when she was quite young. Um, so layer upon layer, building these things, learning how to sort of fossil find, working with a paleontologist oh. quite closely for three weeks um, and, and, and scouring the beaches of Lyme Regis where the film is set. I actually learned on the beaches that Mary would have worked on. And that was pretty thrilling. You're an actress where... I feel like you've taken on so many different kinds of roles over the years. Would you say that this was a, a new kind of experience, that kind of immersion and, and as you say, like bunkerization almost? Yeah, it, yeah bunkerization is a, is <laughs> is definitely a good a good word for it. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a you know, it's always the 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 dream for me as an actress is to be able to be completely immersed in a role, um, and and sometimes that's not always required. Um, but sometimes it's also just not possible um, yeah. because of my own life and my domestic responsibilities and family, which always obviously comes first. And there are a lot of things that I have had to turn down over the years because I knew it would, would require a certain amount of immersion that I just wasn't able to to give because of my home life. Um, so for me, Ammonite felt like a real kind of indulgence in, in that regard um, in terms of the level of intent, intensity um, and, and what had to go into it. Um, it's definitely up there for me, like, you know, when I think about all the different characters I've had the great fortune to play over the years, you know, if I was to kind of like pluck a handful, like it's up there with like, you know, Hannah Schmitz and Mildred Pierce and, and, and Revolutionary Road. Like it's in that world mm. of, you know, ones that I know when I'm 80 years old, God willing, I live to be that old. You know, I look <laughs> back and go, oh, that one and that one. And, you know, I will always kind of clutch myself a bit because, um, yeah, these characters have for sure been, you know, probably the more, you know, rewarding but draining at the time. Yeah. I was fascinated by the function of, of Mary's costumes in this film. And particularly there's a, there's a kind of contrast between how, how almost stiff they look and how comfortable you know she is in, in those in those wares. Um, what was that like for you finding her set her in that those looks and particularly, as you mentioned, the way she moves in them and and there is a kind of precision that that still feels very natural to her, which which was an interesting um, contrast. Um it's such a, you know, it's such an interesting thing to talk about. And I, you know, I, I really appreciate you asking the question because actually you're right. Like there's something about the fabric of Mary's clothes that looks quite harsh. You almost imagine yeah. that if you brushed it, it would make a sound. And actually it did make a sound. Hmm. It did make, make a sort of like a, almost sometimes a scraping noise um, because her clothes, she only had three dresses. And that was a decision that was made um, between myself, the director and the costume designer. Um, she you know, this was a woman of poverty. She just would not have had lots of costumes. Um, and it was very important to me to make those period clothes look like clothes. I didn't want them to, because so often with a period film, you know, 
costumes do look a bit like costumes and the way that things are lit because it's a period story gives it a sort of an otherworldly quality or soft focus or impossibly beautiful lighting in a way that perhaps sometimes isn't isn't always necessarily real or touchable and for me what was really wonderful about Mary's costumes is that I really felt that they were the fabric of her of her world and she had to clean them care for them you know hang them out to dry the second she was in and off of those beaches um and take us take take care of the few things that she had um the trousers the fact that she wears a pair of old men's fisherman's trousers um was uh was something that came out of um some images we found that we were really inspired by of 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 women, working class women in that period in history, um, who these were pictures that were came from later, maybe about 1860, the first photographs started to emerge. And there were groups of women who would help pull the fish in and pick them out of their nets and repairing the nets. And they would sit clearly with no corsets, almost looking like men wearing these wow. trousers. We didn't want Mary to look masculine. That wasn't the idea. But I just knew having worked out on those beaches for weeks on end that she would have been freezing cold and also would have hurt herself if she had not had something covering her legs. And we were inspired by these images of the, of the fisherwomen that we found. You come in with this fully formed vision of this character. And I'm curious, working with a director like Francis, who his style is quite exacting, and um, I'm a huge fan of his, his previous film, God's Own Country, as well. How did you work with him, and, and how did you um, get into sync in that way? Because obviously, when you both have really strong visions for a character, sometimes that can lead to a little bit of tension. I Francis, for me, almost felt like he was quite similar in many ways to Mary. And hmm. he, he gets really attached to his characters because he writes them, creates them and really lives and breathes and think, thinks about them all the time. And so his own fascination with Mary Anning and who she was and where she had come from and, 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 and how she might have lived her life and how she might have loved um, it really became a part of, of, of Francis and he, he is very detailed and he is very exacting. Um, but I, I was so grateful for that because of God's own country and because I had absolutely loved its rawness and its truthfulness um, mm -hmm. and its unblemished, I don't know, um, rhythms. I just, yeah. I just appreciate, I loved that film. I, I loved it. So, so to be in Ammonite for me, I felt like, ah, oh, I'm working with kind of my, my kind of director, you know, that sort of very yeah. real, um, unvain, um, sort of spirit. Did you talk at all about, I, I suppose, the nature of, of the, the queerness of this film? One thing I love about both of Francis' films that I've seen is, um, there's this there's this coding and this understanding of the way queer people can share a look or 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 communicate to one another in silences and obviously silence is so important to this film and really to Mary's very being in a lot of ways. I'm I'm just curious if there were conversations in that regard and finding that element of the story. Um, well, there were lots of conversations about sexuality, um, but for me, I I just appreciated so much how. Francis's interpretation of this love story between these two people was precisely that. It was the telling of a tale of two people who fall in love. So the fact that they were women of a time when lesbian, the word lesbian hadn't even been coined, um, 
and people might consider a relationship like that to be um, forbidden um, or yep. even even quote unquote wrong. Um, and Francis just did not include those themes as a part of our narrative. And for me, that's actually quite moving because mm -hmm. I, I hope that we live or are starting more to live in a, a world that is so inclusive that we are not even noticing the gender of key characters when we're talking about a love story. That to me, hopefully, helps to normalize same-sex connection on film. And if we continue to do that, more LGBTQ films will just slip into the mainstream and we won't feel the need to compare the few that do exist. And we will use the same vocabulary, hopefully, to describe same-sex films as we will heterosexual love stories. Because actually at the moment, it's really interesting. We, we use different words to describe those kinds of intimate scenes even. In, uh -huh. Particularly with women, there are words used that are just so dated. It's almost shocking to me. Yeah. Um, and so I don't know, I just felt, I just felt really privileged to be part of something that I hope is a contribution to the progression and evolution of how LGBTQ people and their relationships are portrayed and viewed on film. One thing that was really um, that was really cool that we we were able to access were real letters, real love letters um, that were written between about 1790 and 1830 um, between women, women who were in marriages to men, but who had these very deeply connected friendships that were founded on sisterhood and a need for affection and communication and just sharing whether it was poetry or just stories and experiences and these letters that we read became love letters that over over the years these women were falling in love really needing one another really truly craving physical connection and intimacy and in some of those letters there was spe really specific wonderful sexual details um that we've that we felt we wanted to kind of honour a little bit in our portrayal of Charlotte and Mary's um, intimate moments. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, of course, of course, those relationships existed, however forbidden people may have considered them to be at the time. How did you work with Serge? I, I sort of associate you with great cinematic pairings, obviously, um, with Leo DiCaprio, but also Jim Carrey in Eternal Sunshine and Spotless Mind, which we were talking about a little bit before um, we started. What with Sersha, how did you find your way in uh, together? Well, we were very lucky that we got we got along really well right away, which definitely does help, you know, because that that's not necessarily always the case, you know. Sometimes people can be a bit odd, a bit different, you know, just have their own <laughs> way about doing things, and and we just we were just in it together completely from the word go. Um, we just listened to one another and. We, we did map out the start to finish arc of Mary and Charlotte's relationship. So every look, every moment when Charlotte puts her hand on Mary's shoulder and you see Mary thinking, yep, her hand was just on my shoulder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, all of those things were, first of all, I'd say 80% of them were scripted and the other 20% were absolutely our joint contributions through conversations that we'd had. Um, in terms of the the more physical, intimate scenes, we did really map those out as a piece of sort of choreography. 
you sort of always have to do that a little bit with intimate scenes because first of all the crew kind of need to know where to be physically you know where the camera's going to go where the focus puller is going to hide herself where the boom operator can be so there's no shadows um because the thing is no one wants to keep doing those kinds of scenes over and over again because normally if there's any magic to be had it will typically happen in like the first one or two takes actually um and mm. then you t finesse it afterwards making sure physical moments that you wanted to land actually did um so Sersh and I were just we were just really great friends and I think the mutual respect for each other's work I mean I've I just she blows my mind in everything she does and she's been mm -hmm. doing it for almost as long as I have even though she's almost half my age um <laughs> and so you know it was just really helpful that we had that that sort of quite easy bond it meant there was a kind of an emotional shorthand between the two of us and um you know, just that sense of like checking in with each other all the time. How are you doing? You okay? What do you think of that? Shall I try anything differently? Well, I really like the one you did two takes ago. Oh, okay, I'll do that one again. We had they were conversations like that. So, you know, so so we sort of played equal parts in kind of almost contributing to each other's performances. Um, but obviously, together, you know, the, the 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 gradual build that sort of space for longing. Um, that we had to trust in between Mary and Charlotte. You know, we had to be in that level of kind of longing and trust together. And uh, we were just very, very lucky that um, that we got along as well as we did. The central love scene that uh, occurs really uh, towards the, the end of the film, it's, first of all, it's just completely extraordinary. And it's really one of the best I've seen um, depicted on film, period. <laughs> uh, it's just, it was oh, just beautiful and passionate. And, um, but also very equitable. The, the the dynamic between you in that scene is really remarkable in the way you can, you we have eyes on both of you in a very particular way. Uh, and you can see your interaction with each other in a really beautiful um, way. Given that you have done love scenes over the years, what was it like to film that versus maybe something you'd done 10 or 15 years ago? Like, did, did it feel different? Did it feel Yeah, it special? felt, yes, it did. It felt, it felt very different and it did actually feel special as well for a, a variety of reasons. But what you just said, I think is really interesting is that, you know, as an audience, I think perhaps there is the ability to see these, those two women connected, really connected in terms of their emotions and their eyes and, 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 and their physical closeness, their touch. And that I think is the way in which it was shot. It was all handheld, hmm. believe it or not. It was all oh, handheld. Wow. And we actually only did the entire scene start to finish because we did it like a set piece and we only did it three times. And the uh, the cinematographer, Stefan Fontaine, who was also our camera operator, he just changed up how he was moving around us in the space on each of those three takes so that there was masses and masses of footage for Francis to intercut with. But most importantly, for the majority of each frame, we're both in it. And of course, that's what that scene is. It isn't, it isn't each individual's character of that intensely um, intimate moment and the impact it's having on each person. It's the shared connection, the shared impact that it's having on the two of them that for me, when I see that scene, 
um, is the most special thing mm. that I, I I get from it because I think that that is actually quite unusual and that typically we see parts of bodies or it's lit in a certain way or sometimes yeah. you can tell if an actor's trying to like hide a bit or they don't want that bit to be seen and we just had none of that we like we didn't have <laughs> that's not how it was ever going to be so um so and I think our you know we wanted it to be good as well. We wanted it to, we wanted to act the scene as well as we could, because of course, at that point in the story, you can feel as an audience member that Mary and Charlotte's relationship is really about to shift after that scene. And it's building up to that moment happening. And so whilst it's very tender and intense, it's also quite painful and heartbreaking because you know that perhaps there's going to be a separation between these two characters shortly afterwards um and it did feel it did feel safe and um and and sort of strong and uh and and very very unselfconscious you know in ways that perhaps i don't think i've ever been able to truly feel before um and i've played lgbtq characters in the past but i've never yeah. you know i've 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 mainly only filmed heter um, heterosexual love scenes before and it's just there's always that odd thing of, you know, do you mind if I put my hand there or do you mind if I don't do this? Do you mind if I... There's always these very strange, slightly comical conversations that happen between <laughs> two actors. And Saoirse and I just didn't have any of that. We were like, well, let's just, you know, this is what we'll do and we'll just make, you know, this is how it should be. And there was no sort of... Um, there was respect, but there was no sort of pointless um niceties about stuff because we were just in it together and in that regard it was very very different and really special there's, there's a freedom there that really shows yeah I think. that's yeah. right and we felt that we did feel very free actually yeah which was yeah quite 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 amazing really you know we didn't didn't sort of expect to feel that i think it was sort of kind of new mm. to both of us really uh, well, to wrap, uh, I'm asking a few people this kind of meta question, which is we are, of course, on the awardist. You have been on the awards trail before. This is a very different <laughs> kind of awards trail. And I'm just curious what this experience has been like for you, you know, being able to stay home and do these chats from home. <laughs> um, well, I mean, it's 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 fantastic. It's It's fantastic. And actually, I'm finding that the conversations I'm able to have about the film are a lot longer than, <clears throat> excuse me, they might normally be with those kind of like 10 minutes that you get in some crazy hotel room somewhere where there's masses of yep. press running around and you're all trying to get that moment. And 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 so actually to really sort of sit and, 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 and think and be considered about the film and also with Ammonite, um, people react to it in different ways based on their own life experiences but but often their own sexuality or how they identify and and so the conversations are just different all the time sometimes they turn into real discussion like even debate and I've loved that side of it and I think that there's been just more time for that which has been great um but in more specific terms so yeah I will often I will often be doing a, an interview and thinking oh shit the food's going to burn. And then I might suddenly have to probably like sneakily text under the screen, take the food out of the oven. Just, <laughs> if the top's burnt, just scrape it off. I mean, things like that will happen. Yeah. Or as happened earlier on today, actually, 
I'd done a quick photo shoot, which had been down here and the photographer came just him with a mask and we shot it in the garden and we live by the sea. So one thing that my husband and the kids and I've been trying to do is a cold water plunge in the water in the <laughs> middle, of, middle of January, which we've been doing every single day, no matter what. And wow. I suddenly realized that there wasn't enough time between ending the photo shoot and running to sit here and do a Q&A. And I just thought, I'm just going to do it. So I quickly, I ran from the photo shoot, took all the costume off, threw on my bathing suit, went and plunged in the water, swam for four minutes in the like six degree water, tried oh not to get gosh. my hair wet, ran into the house, quickly, quickly dried off, put a bit of lipstick on, threw a shirt on and then magic. <laughs> Hi, I'm Kate and Winslet. And here we are. Nice and here we are. <laughs> Thank you so much, Kate Winslet. The film is Ammonite. Uh, you can watch it on demand right now. Experts make mistakes, even the awardists. So we'll be tracking our own progress on this chaotic awards journey by admitting what we're wrong about and gloating about what we're right about. To start, let's focus on the Globe and SAG noms. David, what did you get right and what did you get wrong? I mean, I could just use this opportunity to be like, Joey got a few things wrong, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to tell you what to say, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, you did. You did get a few things right as well. Um, but I'm going to start with what I was wrong about, um, which is, and I literally wrote this in a sentence yesterday, um, that Amanda Seyfried is our Oscar frontrunner. And I always felt unsure about that. Um, but after missing SAG, it is clear that she's not. Um, we've been talking a lot about Mankmentum, which is very <laughs> up and down. It's very hard to track. Um, I'm suspecting the Globes may have gone for this movie in a disproportionately positive way, um, but that maybe what we were seeing was right and that this film is not quite going to connect on a larger level. Uh, which makes Amanda's front... I, I don't think she really has a shot to win this anymore um, now that she's missed out on a SAG nom. Regina King recently did it for If Beale Street Could Talk, but that was a really different case because there was such a support behind her and she's so beloved. And uh, it was her first really long-awaited nomination coming that it, it did make a difference. But I just don't... I don't know that Amanda would be able to come back from that. Um, so that was what I was wrong about. And what I was right about is something that was not reflected in our predictions. And this is going to flow to Joey, which is I did not think that the, that the Five Bloods was going to be a Golden Globes movie. And it was not. They, I mean, I actually still thought that at least Delroy Lindo would be nominated, but it's, it's a kind of long, winding, really politically charged movie. And the HFPA is not one that likes... <laughs> that likes ambition in that way they really they really kind of back away from it and uh yeah. spike lee as a filmmaker did get along with everything else uh globe nods for black Klansmen, but other than that i wouldn't say he has necessarily been a huge hit with that body and that did continue despite his children being selected as ambassadors um and i still think the film is on okay footing for the oscars but uh that that did not surprise me at all off to you joey well, first of all, I think mankmentum is my new favorite word. It sounds like a disease. Like, have you ever loved one been diagnosed with mankmentum? You might love um, that because you really do not care for the film, Mank. I do not care for Mank. Um, I respect it as a technical achievement, but I am not thrilled with it. It's just, it doesn't excite me. Um, I, 
I mean, I would, would I, I think I was texting you when I was watching it. I was like, Lily Collins is my favorite part of this. And that should indicate to you how I feel about Mank if Lily Collins I, is I my have favorite that, I have that text, yes. Yes. Um, but I think for Globes, quite a few things. I, I mean, I did call the Sophia Loren absence because that movie is just not good. And people were predicting her because they think they felt obligated to a legendary diva, of course. But I mean, sorry, girl, pick a better comeback role. And I was also right about Dev Patel, which David did not want to include. Yep. But here we are. So small victories. And I also believe I did suggest to you that On the Rocks was not going to be their cup of tea. You did. Um, lightly. Um, even though we were both very strong on Bill Murray. Um, and we have been from the beginning when a lot of people, um, other people weren't. So I'm really glad that we did that. Um, but I was super wrong about The Five Bloods. Uh, and I was also wrong about Michelle Pfeiffer, mm, uh, which I'm sure yeah. David will shame me for. Um, <laughs> but I'm I felt also, good about that one. Yes, I know you did. Um, I, I'm just I'm also right and correct that Penguin Bloom should have shown up in at least one major category. <laughs> I don't know, Joey. I'm not sure. <laughs> Clarissa, did you see Penguin Bloom? I I I no. You know what? You got me. I did not see it. I did it not is see it. Worth um, it for there's a character in it named <laughs> there is a character in it named Gay, and there is a scene where Jackie Weaver screams, "Thank goodness for Gay," and it is. <laughs> it, it, I'm not kidding. It is the best movie of the year of 2020 slash 2021 well it it has just gotten to the top of my queue so um so i I will uh i will review it before we have our next conversation because obviously that is a hole in my knowledge in time for the sequel penguin tomb which which joey Joey has coined and confirmed with netflix (laughs) by the way um So, Clarice, I think that's your homework, is you kind of need to be up on the Penguin Bloom discourse by the time. I I, I clearly need to be. But I do want to know what what about the nominations this week surprised you? Where were you leaning and and where did you go wrong? Yeah, well, I I definitely went wrong because I thought Delroy Lindo was a shoo-in. I just thought his performance there was so powerful. And I was was really surprised that um, he didn't make it in there. Um, And it just... Yeah, and and just the the whole and Spike as well because um because I I just I don't know I mean could it be because it, it came earlier or is it more just the um earlier in the year or is it more you know just the Golden Globes kind of you know not rewarding um ambition as as you mentioned earlier I mean that that one real that one really surprised me because he's um, not on the BAFTA long list either so he's not uh, he's not getting a BAFTA nomination I think it's uh, he's yeah. out I mean it's yeah it's it's sucks i mean yeah. he's he's at and i think one other element of this i mean to me the delroy snubs are pretty inexplicable especially since that movie did pop with bafta overall mm-hmm. is netflix has so many contenders that they do yeah. tend to cancel each other out i mean they're still going to lead in nominations they just simply would by default but there is i think a, a sense there is of of of, of maybe not overchecking netflix there was a possibility that they would have five ensemble nominees they had three which is the majority but there are there are going to be moments when others take some precedence and i think delroy is one case where you know especially when you have chadwick boseman as the front runner in that category for ma rainey's black bottom um is unfortunately voters do think in that way they think in slots they think in what kind of performances do I want to recognize? And he may be a victim of that. Right. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, the one the one category that um, I, I was um, happy to get wrong only because of history was the the directing category with three women there. Yeah. Um, because, you know, I think I think what was the stat? Only five women have been nominated in that in that category ever. Yep. Mm-hmm. And three this year, so I am thrilled about that. And yeah. um, and I think that's that's. I mean, I, I hope that carries on to the Oscars. And um, you know, we shall see. The only one I'm worried about is Emerald. Um, I, I think that Emerald is probably not as strong heading into the Oscars as Regina and uh, Chloe are. I think Chloe is a mm-hmm. lock for sure. Um, mm-hmm. Regina not as much of a lock, but I think definitely has a better chance than Emerald. But of the three, I think you know they're just such distinct movies um so you can't even argue that it's like oh well they're just putting them in there because they're women they're just such distinct buzzy talked about films for very different ways so um very much well deserved on all three yeah absolutely and three totally different kinds of directors too yes you know yeah uh, it's just wonderful to see well, that's all from us today. Thanks for joining us on the first stop of this season's The Awardist. And thanks to Joey for his insights and Naomi Watts' passion. <laughs> Please subscribe and listen along every week wherever you get your podcasts. Rate us, tell us what you think, share it with your friends. You can also head to ew.com slash for complete coverage of this year's Oscar race. And follow me on Twitter at ClarissaNYC1, David at DavidCanfield97, and Joey at Joey Nolfi. We'll be back next week with more, including coverage of the TV side of the Globes and an interview with Stanley Tucci and Colin Firth. Thanks for listening. This has been The Awardist. Stan Penguin Bloom. (laughs) Always.